Welcome back to Life and Books and Everything. This is Kevin DeYoung with Justin Taylor and Colin Hansen. It is good to be with you all. We are recording this on Monday, November 9. So whenever this airs, maybe Tuesday or Wednesday morning, we should not be held responsible for any breaking news, catastrophes, anything else that has gone on in the world. We meant to record a post-election podcast last week, but we decided there was there was so much news unsettled, so much news still happening, so much noise going around that the world would be quite all right without the three of us bloviating for an hour about what we saw. So we decided to put that off a few days, and you can get some of it right now. So we are glad to be with you again. We do not have a sponsor so all of the um, the pizza ranches, the Bojangles of the Mountain world. Dew Zero. Yeah, Mountain Dew. Well, let's get the real thing. Let's some some Code Red Mountain Dew, whatever's out there. Uh, Hillbilly we, yes, we're 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 all ears. Crossway will be back as our sponsor. Crossway will be back. We not are they're back. It's them. not that they were upset or offended by the material of this podcast. Hopefully they're... not. So. Um, Start with what's important, uh, college football. So it looks like Michigan State is probably going to go one and seven, but the one win is against Michigan. And <laughs> almost, I mean, I think every Spartan fan, they said, you want to go seven and one or one and seven? And do you, we'll, we'll take one and seven and we beat Michigan. How bad must Michigan be to lose to the team that loses to Rutgers and gets blown out by Iowa? How so, good did that feel, Kevin? What? How good did that feel? To beat Michigan or get lose to Rutgers? <laughs> Both. Yeah. Um, after we lost to Rutgers, I decided I just one less thing for my emotions to care about this year. So I didn't even pay attention until I decided to check about halftime of the Michigan-Michigan State game. I said, hey, we're, we're winning. And I told my kids, guys, turn this on. We're not losing. Uh, and then Iowa, Iowa was so bad as I texted you guys, we were so far behind, not even mail-in ballots from Philadelphia could save us. <laughs> we were in bad shape. I'll tell you where my, my heart is as a Husker fan. I, I don't know if you saw that little excerpt that Tim Keller posted about how, you know, if, uh, you know, one of your political parties is become an idolatry yeah. and I was thinking about rewriting the whole thing for sports. So that's how <laughs> that's how my Saturday went. That's what that's what losing to Northwestern does for people. Northwestern <laughs> might be good. Three and oh hey, hey look, it's a top three national defense. Maryland struggled in their first game, couldn't score and has gone on to blow everybody out. Uh, since then, Iowa that struggled against Northwestern's defense, they went on to blow you guys out, Michigan State. They might be legit. We'll find out this week with, against Purdue. So I mean, they were must... not as bad as they should have. They, they looked last year. That was an aberration. Anyway. Well, don't you feel like with Pat Fitzgerald, you generally think we're, we're going to, we're going to play better than we should. And that's what, that's what all you can hope for is a Northwestern. We're going to be better mm -hmm. than we should be on paper. Yeah. And, and the style of football is going to frustrate the opponent like Nebraska. It's just going to frustrate them because they're saying, wait a minute, this just doesn't, it looks like we can win. This is kind of ugly. But then you, if you're a Northwestern fan, you realize that every game is like that. Every yeah. game is that way against Iowa, against everybody. It always feels ugly. Why aren't we scoring? You don't realize Northwestern's entire defense is designed to allow you to move between the 20s, <laughs> fool you into false hope, and then shut mm. you down in the end. But so. more than one Nebraska reporter independently referred to the game as a rock fight, which is not typically <laughs> like what you, you know, get up early on Saturday morning, like, hey, kids, come, let, let's watch a rock fight out in the backyard. <laughs> Whenever so Northwestern's playing at Northwestern, uh, my kids say, is that, is that a high school stadium? Well, I, I was, I was actually thinking this last week that I'm really glad there were no fans there, like Justin, who was there two years ago for a game that I'm sure he'll remember, um, because then Northwestern did not have to run a silent count at home <laughs> with Nebraska's fans there. So God bless us, Northwestern fans. We're just spread all over the world, and uh, we're not there in Evanston to support our team, sadly. All right, this is a transition to 
to, to talking about the election, which we'll do for a bit. We won't do for the whole time. But a semi-serious we'll question, uh, Justin, since you're close to Nebraska, and for a moment in time, it was very conceivable that Nebraska's Omaha district could have put Biden over the top for the win. If, you know, all the states that were still in play, people were saying, what if he won 272-68 because of Nebraska? Was there a lot of chatter about that just over the river? Because that doesn't usually happen that Nebraska gives any of their delegation to the Democrat. Yeah, I, I actually wasn't. I had gallbladder surgery that day. Yeah, so I was not paying attention to Good much uh, for, for part of the day. Um, yeah, I didn't actually hear about that very much in, uh, prior to the election. I mean, I think people know that it's a it's kind of this quirky little thing, but I didn't hear a lot of talk about it. It just seemed like given the way in which 2020 has worked so far that it was going to end up with some weird glitch like 269 to 269 or um the the only thing that felt like it was inevitable was that it wouldn't be a boring night and uh i guess that proved true to some degree how are you feeling by the way justin you you feeling better after this surgery how are you doing yeah everything hurts and i feel like i'm dying no <laughs> i i feel fine uh you had your gallbladder removed or just things that were not good in the gallbladder I think that they only remove it. Like if there's anything yeah. wrong with it, they just take it out. Um, Did you see I it? have it like, yeah, I have it like uh, on my desk in a formaldehyde jar. Because, uh, <laughs> you named we'll it. Post a picture. Yeah. <laughs> Great. I asked the surgeon later, like, so how many stones were they and how big were they? Like, he's like, we, we don't count. And we really don't care. We just take it out. <laughs> <laughs> like a surgeon who's a man of few words. Yeah. <laughs> we're getting it out of there. I'm not here to entertain. I'm here to take out body parts. Exactly. So here's where we are on the election. And and there are so many political podcasts and there's so many other things people can listen to or follow on the news to get their fix of rank punditry. So we'll try to steer clear from just the political ins and outs, though some of that may come into our analysis. But my question for you guys is, as you think about where we are right now, and, and let's just say that I, I, I know that there are, are lawsuits, uh, there are things coming to the courts about recounts or possible ballot handling shenanigans. And uh, I, I think it's safe to say that doesn't seem like that's going to go somewhere. But, uh, you know, I think most everyone agrees we want every ballot Every legal ballot counted, nothing more, nothing less. So if there is more of a process to go through, uh, certainly some people listening to this may be uh, absolutely convinced that there is uh, something to find out and others quite sure that there isn't and just want to put the whole thing behind us. So for the most part, we're, we're just, we, we want to let that play out and pray for transparency and honesty and that the end result would be uh, better trust for our our system of government. So if there's something to find out, we find it out. But where we stand right now certainly looks like and seems like Joe Biden is going to be the next president. We may or may not have a Republican Senate to runoff elections in Georgia. Uh, Republicans surprisingly picked up a number of seats in the House, which no one really saw coming. So there's a lot of different ways to describe what happened and what is still unfolding. So Colin, I'll start with you. What are two or three takeaways you have uh, for yourself as you think about the election, and in particular as it relates to Christians and to the church? What are some things you're thinking about or some, some lessons that you're pondering one week after the election? Well, bear with me. These will all be contestable, just like the election, um, and with a range of in and out of the politics and as it as it works into the religion. Um, there have only been four presidents who have lost after one term in the last century. And so what we've seen this last week is is historic. It's not common. It's very, very 
very difficult to defeat an incumbent president running for re-election. Republicans have also lost seven out of the eight last popular votes for president. Now, caveat, of course, nobody's campaigning for winning the popular vote, so it's not necessary. At the same time, it's probably just not a good sign for national party. Um, And so something's not quite working in the Republican coalition, at least for president, but nobody has a clear idea of what's not working or why. So a lot of the time in the upcoming weeks, months, years is going to be spent trying to sort that, sort that out. I mean, uh, four years ago or, you know, before Trump was elected, I was convinced Republicans were going to ditch social conservatives and go for a more libertarian type strategy. That couldn't have been more wrong. Um, And now moving in a more populist uh, direction. And I think that probably has better possibilities in terms of contrast with the Democratic Party and for uh, just for sheer numbers of votes. But the point being, politics is great for making seemingly smart people uh, just dumb about stuff. So I'm not trying to make a, a sort of a statement about exactly what I think should be done about that, but just to say what we saw was was historic and is part of a, an ongoing long-term trend that's problematic for Republicans. Um, y- you mentioned Kevin the House, and in a number of different places, Republicans generically are running for Congress or state house, state houses or governor, uh, performed better than President Trump. That wasn't the case everywhere, um, but it was uh, the case in some notable places. And so you could see there was not the anticipated, is what a lot of media had expected, the anticipated sharp leftward turn. The blue wave. Yeah, exactly. The blue wave, the turn for the whole country, in part because, yes, President Trump did turn out huge record numbers of people to vote against him. But the Republicans and President Trump also turned out a lot of people themselves. And so there wasn't that big shift. I don't know how you guys read those results, because it's clearly not some kind of radical leftward shift. And yet we now have recreational marijuana in South Dakota. Um, And we also have a President Trump who was very open himself, but especially through his wife, proudly boasting of being the first president of all time in the United States to support gay marriage when he came into office in 2016. So what is Republican is not the same thing as what is what is conservative or what is socially conservative there. And so it's hard to read no major huge leftward shift. And yet the Republican Party and its voters have shifted to the left on social issues. Um, to a certain extent. So that's hard to kind mm-hmm. of uh, get a read on. Uh, let me give you one more. Well, let me interject more. quickly. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Strangely with that, California, California yeah. rejected whatever they're calling it, that diversity measure by pretty significant right. margins. And and Louisiana uh, banned abortion right. uh, or, or uh, affirmed their earlier ban, you know, with, with Roe v. Wade, if that gets overturned, that it'll be written in that it's not going to be legal in Louisiana. And, but then also Nevada wrote gay marriage into their constitution if that gets overturned. So you're right. It's hard. That's why I'm saying it's, it's hard to get a read on exactly what happened. So it's easy to say there was no huge leftward shift but it doesn't appear necessarily that it was a victory for social conservatives. Um, it just kind of, it's just kind of muddied. Um, but then you look at places like Orange County, California, with it looks like two, if I understand correctly, two pro-life women, uh, you know, House members who ran ahead of President Trump in that area. Listeners can correct me if I'm wrong on that. I haven't done a ton of research on that. But Orange County was one of the notable places that two and four years ago just got Republicans really got thumped. Uh, there. <clears throat> so uh, my last two points, uh, one is that this is, is President Trump's Republican Party. And I think you see that in part with, I mean, that seems obvious, but the fact I think we've only had two senators come out and sort of acknowledge the results as we understand them so far, Lisa Murkowski in, uh, in Alaska and then Mitt Romney uh, in Utah, which is not surprising because they've been the two biggest critics of Trump from within the Republican uh, uh, Senate. So, I mean, he he really does lead the party. But what's going to be difficult for Republicans is that 
what's best for President Trump specifically and personally is not necessarily what's best for the Republican Party in general. So typically, I mean, unless they can find a way to increase his increase his constituency as a presidential loser, they've got to be able to move on. But that's not what's best for him. What's best for him would be to continue to stoke the, you know, stoke interest in his own personal brand and his own candidacy and to keep the dream alive that he'll run again to be the only the second president of all time to win two non-consecutive terms uh, for office. And so I'll be watching to see which and how many Republicans believe it is in their best political interests to oppose President Trump, to carve out a space for them in the end. Uh, one last point, and I know I've gone on too long here, but this is specifically related to the religious side of things. Because like you said, Kevin, there's plenty of people they can get all the punditry from. We've seen a very interesting Christian alliance that come together around President Trump, and he's inspired a lot of uh, confidence and uh, conviction in a group of people. And I, it ranges all the way from uh, post-millennial reconstructionists to prosperity gospel, all the way from Paula White to Kenneth Copeland to um, to Bethel in Redding, California, uh, to Baptist revivalists, uh, to Reformed Southerners, uh, whether it be Southern Baptist or PCA. That is a, a coalition that has pretty extreme theological differences from one another, but for whom the politics, and specifically President Trump, has brought a great amount of, of um, co-belligerency. And I wonder, does that coalition continue without President Trump to draw them all together? I don't have any answers, but that's something I'm mm. looking for. That's really good. Um, let, well, that let was a lot. <laughs> no, that's good. Let me let me jump in with mine, then we'll get to Justin, and then we'll see what questions we have for each other. So I, I, I have three thoughts. One, we should not over-interpret the results of the election. You you hit on some of that already. It's very difficult. You can you can make out a plausible case for all sorts of interpretations of what happened. And as we we were texting over the last few days, in one sense, it's not a lot different from 2016. Uh, these are just rough estimates. But if you take California out of the equation, and I know it's a big state, the biggest, you can't just take it. But if you did, it's about exact, it's about 50-50 Republican and Democrat who you voted for for president. With California, it's two or three percentage points more toward the Democrats. If in 2016 you rearranged about 25,000 or 30,000 votes in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, Hillary's the president. We're not having this conversation. If, uh, depending on how everything turns out in some of these states, but you know, if you rearrange 40 or 50,000 votes this time around, you're talking about shocker again, Trump wins. So we should be careful both in reinterpreting 2016 as some Trump landslide or reinterpreting this. The Electoral College does what it does, and that number is what matters. But we're not talking about a vastly different outcome. So this reminds me in sports, one of my pet peeves in sports is you can have you know, two teams playing basketball and it comes down to the end and the guy's fouled and they're down by one and he misses two free throws. And now suddenly all of the post-game commentary is all about, well, they, you know, the team that won, they, they just have the heart of a champion and everything is described as if it were inevitable that they are in every way superior when from a, a human point of view, it was the luck of a roll or a bounce. And suddenly we're telling a completely different, one little thing changed, one free throw, went in, went out, one small thing changed. And now we're telling a completely different story. No, it, it, everything else about that game was the same, but now you're describing with an entirely different narrative. And so I think, we need to be careful not to over-interpret, and uh, you know that's what both sides tend to do. All of a sudden, there's a mandate. Well, I I don't know how you determine 
I guess uh, I would say if you're Reagan in 1984, you can say you have something of a mandate. Uh, I don't think any of the elections uh, since we've been voting could be described as a mandate. They're very close. We're a very divided country politically. So don't overinterpret. Here's a second takeaway. This maybe has more to do with the church. Uh, Justin, I agreed with your post um, on where you arguing against a pro-life case for voting for Biden. So let's just talk about pro-lifers listening to this, some of whom voted for Trump, some of whom didn't vote for Trump. I, I, I think we in the church have not done enough to try to understand why people who have most of the same political convictions on paper, most of the same important theological convictions on paper, come to very, very different opinions on Trump. So what I mean is, I think if you are in the church, and it's not all generational, but let's just say if you're our generation or older, and you're not at least thinking about why is it that the younger you are, the more distasteful a conservative Christian found Trump. If you're not at least trying to think that through and trying to have some creative imagination of how someone could come to that conclusion, even if it's not your conclusion, and conversely, if, if call them the elites, call them whatever, uh, the call them never Trumpers, if, if those sort of folks in our circles don't try to understand why someone might find Trump to be not just a hold your nose, but okay, I don't like who what he stands for personally in his character, but consider him to be their sort of champion. Now, I'm not even saying whether I agree or disagree with both of those views, but I think we've been very quick to just think, if you come to a different conclusion about Trump, um, it's so patently obvious. And in particular, I don't want to say in particular because I think it goes both ways. But I think what I'm seeing and, and, and saw, again, with these election results, there are a lot of people who, and they're probably the ones not listening to this podcast. They're, they're, they're not on Twitter. They're not, and they're not following the news. We're an anomaly to know what's going on in all the states. And I mean, I had very smart people that I know and am friends with who have advanced degrees who are texting me on Thursday, like, so what happened? What states are still out there? Like, how, how do you not know that? Aren't you down to like Bucks County and Allegheny? And aren't you following the precinct by precinct? No, most people aren't. And so I think we need to try to understand why there has been this affinity for Trump. Some of it uh, has been, you know, certainly we can see ways in which it's misplaced. And then there's other aspects that I think we need to say, okay, what, what's going on here? Because it's not just about Trump. Colin, you're you're the, the one who's so good at macro analysis, but it has to do with Brexit. It has to do with a number of movements around the world, call it populist, call whatever, but there is this sense of, uh, you know, Trump certainly has a a has formed a populist sort of coalition, and if the exit polls are to be believed, actually more women, more minorities voted for him in higher percentage than before. So there's something there to at least think through. And then and the, married and when married women were the strongest constituency for Trump. Y- yeah, which, I mean, which is interesting because I, I I saw something. You know, one of one of the things that uh, President Biden will likely do is push for something that I think a lot of people are going to imagine to be just an an obvious good, which is for federally funded preschool. Okay, that's been a common thing throughout, and you just you, you might think, well, what's okay? Well, who would be against that? That's that's great. I don't know if you guys saw the division of like which professions or jobs are most supportive of Trump and which ones of Biden. 
I don't know if you guys saw the one profession that is the most supportive of Trump, homemakers, women at home. And that did not surprise me at all. A lot of, I mean, within the bigger division, you can break down little divisions. And one of the biggest divisions we see in politics in America today, which includes our churches, this is a message to church leaders, to us and to others, is the division between married and single women. Right. Very, very significant divisions there. So as a political lens that reflects a a, a reality within our churches, um, and that's something we can learn and pay attention to, and a little bit surprising uh, from what people would expect. So yeah, married women more likely to vote for Trump than married men were. Yeah. So last point, and then we'll get Justin. Um, By the time this comes out, I I think my blog will be out where I, I argue that I think we would all do well, or most of us would do well to just say a lot less. That uh, Alison Krauss song wasn't first with her, I think, but you say it best when you say nothing at all. I just sometimes think uh, all the caveats of sometimes we speak and some people are really good at it. and But I just look at... Uh, my Twitter feed or Facebook or online in particular. And I think, why why do you need to give your running commentary? Um, Is there any special expertise you have? uh, Any special knowledge that you are called upon to give? And my, one of my biggest concerns in all this is how politics has become our national pastime, even our national religion, because think about it. We don't watch the same movies. We don't watch the same television shows. We don't live in the same, we have all these, these pluriformity of cultures. And the one thing that is nationalized at a massive scale now are electoral politics. So it's the one thing we all can kind of be into, but it's the one thing that brings us together that then brings us apart. And we may think that giving our constant hot takes is really influencing the culture, really discipling others, but it's probably just annoying more people than it's helping. And it, how much is it really transforming the culture when I think it reflects that we have already been inundated by the culture because we're talking about all the things that the media tells us we should be talking about. And yes, I have thoughts on almost all of these things, and restrain myself from sharing most of them because I'm jealous that when people think of Kevin DeYoung or Christ Covenant or RTS or TGC or whatever I'm affiliated with, they think Bible teaching, good theology, reform doctrine. And they don't think, first of all, that's the guy that is for or against this candidate. Now, if we're going to talk about politics, because we should, it matters. Christians have always talked about it then let's get back to some first principles or let's let's argue about you know what Thomas Sowell calls the constrained vision or the unconstrained vision let's talk on that level of moral philosophy on christian theology engaging with politics rather than here's the latest breaking news and i need to tell you why it already confirms what my priors are so end of sermon justin Good. you have been patient with us set us all straight with your <laughs> your oracle from on high let the refutations begin uh yeah I, a number of thoughts of course uh probably not as cleanly neatly organized as you brothers but um you know, one thing that strikes me is just that twitter is not real life i think that's a good absolutely uh, follow-up from Kevin's observations just from the exit polls. And, you know, if you if your only portal into reality is Twitter, you're going to be very confused by what happened and the ins and outs. Did because... you see the Biden campaign said the last two weeks they all <laughs> turned off Twitter? Twitter. No. <laughs> yeah, that well, was probably a smart move. Yeah, very smart move. So that's one thing. I just uh, we all need to get out. We need to talk to people. We need to listen. We need to not think that a certain self-selected slice of virtual reality is uh, full reality. Of course, it is part of reality, but it's not not the whole thing. Um, I think we should explicitly acknowledge the blessings of um, a peaceful transition to power, even if a uh, President Trump takes. Uh, 
various states to court and um, does not readily acknowledge defeat, um, I think that we will end up having a peaceful transition of power. I don't think there's going to be bloodshed. I don't think he's going to refuse to leave the White House. And I think that's one of those things that is so easy for us to take for granted that we live in a country where every four years uh, it it may go back and forth between each party, uh, but but that that tradition exists and it is a, a blessing. Uh, another blessing, I think, is just that we have a, a free press that can report things from an explicitly conservative viewpoint, from an explicitly progressive standpoint. Uh, I think that that comes with drawbacks. Uh, I, I think in particular the curse of 24-7 news is we're, we're reaping the results of that. Um, there is not breaking news every minute of the day, 365 days out of the year. And at some point, I think we have to acknowledge that the media is not the problem. The media is entirely dependent upon us as the consumers of media. And so we enable the press to be what it is. And I think, I think it's problematic. Um, I think another reminder for me out of this election, this is not the, the rank punditry that you guys are, are so eager for, but um, one reflection. No rank me, punditry. I know, but I know you love Frank Punditry. (laughs) Okay, I'll give you one Rank Punditry thing. Um, The Democrats, every year, with with two exceptions that I can think of, have nominated an exceptionally boring person to be their uh, standard bearer. So go back to Carter, 1980, loses. I mean, just the prototypical boring white guy. Who do they follow up with four years later? Walter Mondale. Four years after that, Michael Dukakis. I mean, these you, you cannot pick more boring, less charismatic people on the planet. They make an exception with Clinton. Uh, he wins back-to-back elections. A guy, even if you hate him, he's got charisma. He's interesting. He's interesting to listen to. Year after that, they go to Gore, then the Kerry. No surprise, they lost both of those. Then they make the exception with Obama and then Hillary who is just sort of in a category of her own. I think people are excited about her because she was a woman, but nobody thinks that she has extraordinary gifts of charisma. Um, And then Biden, I mean, another sort of boring white guy, but this is the one election where the one thing that you needed to be is just boring. You you don't, don't need any other uh, accomplishments. I mean, they had all sorts of other interesting characters that they could have nominated, but finally nominating the most uh, boring candidate that they could uh, pays off for the Democrats with the uh, exceptions of Clinton and Obama in there. So that's that's my rank punditry. Um, striking to me that as I've reflected upon what does it mean to vote, um, my my working proposal is that votes actually do not have a meaning. There's no inherent meaning in casting Dude, a vote. that's really deep, man. <laughs> no meaning in your vote. There is no inherent meaning. I think it all resides in somebody's intentions. So that means that we must not be judgmental upon somebody for the mere fact that they cast a vote, whether they voted for a third party or they voted for one of the candidates. Uh, it, it all depends upon why. Would you discipline a person for voting for a particular candidate or not voting for a particular candidate? I think we need to think more deeply about what it, what is the meaning of of a vote, and, and I think we've we've sort of just had a simplistic uh, approach to that. Uh, let, so let me what else. push yeah, on ahead. that because people yep. listening will push and say, "Well, aren't you the guy who?" <laughs> wrote about there's not a good pro-life case for voting for Biden. Are you just saying then, Justin, that vote doesn't matter? Whoever you vote for is fine. Christians could vote for anybody? No, I'm not saying that. And I think we can make good arguments for voting for somebody, against voting for somebody. But the act of voting in and of itself with no other contextual information does not give us a lot of information. True. Because for somebody, it can mean a full-fledged endorsement. I want to publicly endorse this person, everything that they stand for. Somebody could cast a vote for a candidate and say, I hate these 10 things, but this one thing rises to the surface in a disproportionate way. I just don't think that we can tell what 
uh, a vote means in and of itself without knowing background, without knowing arguments. And I think somebody could argue a convoluted, in my uh, perspective, it could be unpersuasive pro-life argument for voting for Biden, which I would disagree with, and I would want to argue that. But that's why I think uh, we must be very slow to kind of go to the church discipline button when it comes to voting without knowing more information. So, so in other I, words, I think the only way to disagree with me would be to say, yes, voting has such an inherent meaning that no matter what your intentions are, no matter what you think you are accomplishing, you have committed a de facto sin by the mere fact of using your pen to color in a certain circle. Go ahead, Colin. So you, you'd say the same thing then about party registrations. Right. That registering for a certain party has no inherent meaning? Right. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that what our understanding of meaning is, is that you have to think through intentionality. What are the motivations for that? And in a country of this many million people, there's going to be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of different motivations and rationales and proposals and putting things together. So I, I think we've just started with that assumption that that a vote has an inherent meaning. And I I would just want to push back on that a little bit. I think uh, I think there's a reason for that, Justin. I think when I saw Republicans responding to the election results, it wasn't even necessarily about President Trump winning and him being able to have certain kind of power and to carry out a certain vision for how to govern the country. It was more about, hey, look at us. There are so many of us. They mock us. They call us names. They think we're losers. But see, there are tens of millions of people who agree with me. So I think the reason, Justin, that people weight the vote with so much meaning is because it's a tribal marker. And I think that's one reason why when I've seen people criticize folks like Dever or Piper or others when it comes to their denial of identifying with the Republican Party, and calling them elites. Well, that to me is the sign. That to me is the sign that what you're talking about here is not, it's about a tribal marker. And you're you're not, by, by voting a certain way, you're not identifying with the right tribal marker. And I think that's what makes people so upset is because they think, wait a minute, you're not part of our group anymore. Because the intent has a lot to do with whether or not you're on the, you're in the right group and everything that comes with that. Do you think that's fair, Justin, or or not? Yeah, I do, um, and that relates to the last point I was going to make: is the the disease I have about Christians and churches dividing, not so much over strategy and not so much over position when it comes to to voting and support, but to posture. That there's a certain inclination to say, "I'm with these people who take this posture." And this tone and this tactic, uh, that seems to be uniting people into a greater tribe than our doctrine and our shared commitments, which I think should have a, a, a deeper foundation and deeper resonance with us. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so I, uh, I agree, I think, with 85 or 90 percent of all of that. I definitely agree, and I've been trying to say this on my blog and on this podcast, that what we mean by voting is ambiguous and elastic. So I'd have to think if, if you know, philosophically, if I want to use the word meaningless, uh, I know what you mean. You don't mean it's unimportant. You mean it, the, the meaning is not inherent. That's the word yeah. you use. Inherently without meaning. meaning. Yeah. Meaning. So yeah. I, but, I wouldn't say meaningless. Right. Not I mean, meaningless. It, yeah. So I, I could I could imagine scenarios where perhaps a a referendum, a ballot measure that's so clear that there is an inherent meaning to are you for you know allowing husbands to kill their wives, yes or no? It you know what and so I, I think you would agree with that. There are certain extreme scenarios where there may be an inherent meaning. But I do ag agree with what you're saying, which is why I think it's dangerous to cast aspersions when what we're what we think we're disagreeing on are these matters of first importance. And what we may really be disagreeing on is how we construe of the act of voting 
itself. The the other thing, and I don't I don't know if this is a pushback against anything you guys are saying, but maybe a pushback against some of what I can sense out there. Um, I I do not have uh, I'll say Anabaptists, and some Anabaptists is listening and saying that's not how we think of it. But what I think of as a historic Anabaptist approach to politics, maybe the Niebuhr's Christ against culture, or the Shane Claiborne, Jesus for president. Well, Jesus is not on the ballot for president. So I think there there is an instinct that some people can have that we just need to rise above all of this messy partisan politics, not get our, our hands dirty in it. I'm for Jesus. I'm for King Jesus coming on the throne and kind of a pox on both of your houses and I, I don't like the Republicans or the Democrats. Well, of course, there's a lot that's true in all of that. And yet, um, you know, for the foreseeable future, and it's been this way for 150 years, if you're going to have at least legislative or electoral impact, you're going to do it in this country through the Republican or through the Democrat Party. And so I don't think we can just wash our hands of that and say, I, I don't belong to any of them and they're all equally bad and equally, I don't, and that's not what you guys are saying, but I just want to push back on, on anyone who thinks we can avoid somehow the messiness of it. You agree yeah, with that, I Justin? Com- I completely agree with that. And I, you know, talking about political homelessness, I get that and I resonate with it to some degree. And yet it always strikes me as ironically, some sort of I am superior to all of you out there who uh, just can't see the light and are so blinded by your partisanship, whether to the left or to the right. And as if Jesus somehow, if he were to come back, would disagree with half of the GOP agenda and half of the Democratic agenda and would propose some third way that nobody's ever thought of before. Again, I think like you're saying, Kevin, you know, there's there's grains of truth in there. If there wasn't right. grains of truth, it would just be ridiculous and it would be dismissed out of hand. But this idea that we're kind of perfectly calibrated, uh, you know, Jesus is uh, too liberal for the conservatives and he's vice versa on the other side. I Those are all pet peeves of mine. And I, I totally agree with you. I, I see where you guys are coming from that, but I do want to say that I don't think this is the best our two political parties can be. And you have limited options of being able to send a message to politicians who tend not to respond to any message other than you're fired. So it's just a, it's a tough situation there. So how do you come in and say, this is how politics works. It's approximate good. Um, none of us is completely above sort of the act of loving our neighbor through politics. Yet at the same time, surely we shouldn't settle for this. <laughs> right. Surely this has got to be better. What are my options of being able to do this? And how do you break the cycle of a political dynamic where the only thing necessary is that you're not as bad as the other guy? Right. And that's explicitly how campaigns are run. I don't have any good answers here, guys. I'm just saying that's where the Anabaptist part of me comes out a little bit more And I think I share a little bit of Keller and Piper's distaste for politics, but it's not because I have a distaste for politics in general. I agree in principle. I have a distaste for where we've arrived to at this political moment. That's what's frustrating to me. At the risk of descending into some rank punditry, (laughs) two counterintuitive inclinations. wonder if you agree with them. One, and... um, you know, I hear this all the time, and you guys probably are listening to some of the same people I am who make this point, and that is that our political parties are too weak, not that they're too strong. Stronger political parties would tend to give us n- not foolproof, but better political candidates. Uh, it wasn't always, or it often has not been this way for most of history, that you essentially have a general campaign, election campaign for your two nominees. Uh, we can decry backroom deals and smoke-filled rooms and you know conventions deciding it all, but the convention really doesn't decide it. And you can make a case that stronger political parties would do more to weed out candidates that they thought were worse 
certainly, I think you you saw the the Democrat Party do that this year, all coalescing yeah. to get the person that they thought they, they didn't think Bernie Sanders was going to beat Trump, and he probably wouldn't have. Uh, they they did they did in twenty twenty what Republicans did not do in 2016. That's right. That's right. Um, and by the way, there is a movement, just speaking of what you're talking about there, um, let's see, Senators Ben Sass, Mike Lee, and Rand Paul, I'm trying to see if who else, have all come out in favor of repealing the 17th Amendment yeah. of the Constitution, the direct election of senators, as a way of trying to strengthen the institutions of the party, um, as opposed to the platforming of more radical direct appeals to the people, basically a move back toward Republicanism, broadly speaking. I mean, not not party, but Republican identity as opposed to Democratic identity. And the other counterintuitive, and wasn't it Greg Forrester who said this, or we got you know heard this through some of our friends, but others have made this point. We can in America sort of think if only we had more parties, if we only had a third party, that would get the the best of of both worlds, and that would be the home for everyone. Well, maybe, but lots of other countries and parliamentary systems have multiple parties, and they have, you know, huge disappointment with who they get to vote for. Of course, a parliamentary system is different and with a prime minister from the party than a president. But it's also the case that when you have two parties, they have to be very broad coalitions. As bad as we think it is, When you have to hold together, both parties do a very disparate coalition of interests. You talked about just the different theological camps, let alone all the different rival interests that voted for Trump or voted for Biden. There's something that can be very good when it prevents extremes by saying, well, we have to be a whole lot of things to a lot of people if we're going to try to get these votes. And it, it, in some sense, it comes down to, is government working better when it has a really hard time getting things done? A conservative would say, yeah. I mean, who was it who tweeted something, the summary of the Federalist Papers? Did you do that today, Justin? I think I retweeted it from, was it from Paul Miller? Yeah. What was it? Uh, something like the federalism is de- designed to dilute stupidity or decentralize. <laughs> yeah, decentralized stupidity. So if you think good government is doing all sorts of stuff, then that's frustrating. But if you think frustrating government and gumming it up and slowing it down is better, then uh, you know it's not all that bad. All I right. would imagine. I would imagine Greg, by the way, has in mind. Israeli politics, when he's thinking about multiple parties, he's thinking about how rarely do one of the major parties win an election outright yeah. um, uh, for the Knesset. And so what you've seen in year after year is is the Likud party needing to incorporate and basically make a deal with the far right parties um, to be able to, to get power. And that ends up actually making their politics more extreme. And entrenched. At least that's an interpretation. I'm just passing that along. That's one concrete example of what you're talking about there. Right. If we had five political parties and you could win states with 25% and 75% of the people did not want you, but you won, that prevents that that makes even more people unhappy. More people yeah. feel as if their voice is not heard. Yeah. All right, we're ready to uh, land the plane in the last 15 minutes with a couple other topics. Let's do it. So real quick, uh, this isn't more fun because it's it's sad, but uh, you would have seen that Alex Trebek passed away on Sunday, age 80, pancreatic cancer. Uh, for anyone listening outside of the U.S., I'm not sure if you see Jeopardy syndicated wherever you are, but it's been a, a mainstay of American television since the 80s. Uh, Pat Sajak doing Wheel of Fortune and then Jeopardy, which is the classic quiz show, and Alex Trebek, who was beloved by many and led with a a kind of cool, if at times uh, disdainful professionalism, but was beloved by many. And I I just wonder, thoughts on, uh, did you guys grow up watching Jeopardy? Is it something that you did? I, I do admit that normally... Justin knows this. Normally, when some famous person dies, 
and everyone starts tweeting, gutted, <laughs> crushed. I'm in a pool of my own tears. I couldn't go outside today. Kevin you know, DeYoung pet peeves. Kevin DeYoung, Kevin pet, DeYoung peeves, pet peeves are all the people crying all the time. My favorite character on Saved by the Bell. He's gone. I can't go out. Okay, but I really... Kevin, Kevin is secretly British for all those out Secretly. He's uh, Dutch, American, but actually British, personality-wise. Yeah. So, but I... I have watched Jeopardy for years and years and years. And most nights at my home, if I'm there, uh, we, we turn it on and at least some of us are watching it and the kids watch it. And I love Jeopardy. I love the questions I've tried out for the online. You know, I filled that out. I've never got the call to go on the show. My kids are waiting for it so we can get rich, but I love Jeopardy. And Alex Trebek was, was great. I have some, you know, funny, clips of him doing uh funny things but what are uh, i'll get back to that what do you guys take do you do you care about this news any lessons to draw oh i just I, this is one of my one of my favorite stories guys um my college roommate tom mcgrath uh appeared on jeopardy it was the christmas 2012 episode december 25th 2012 and here was the answer i'm gonna ask you guys okay this I think this was um, I think it was, was a daily double. Okay, this common Irish prefix comes from the French name for sun. What is the question? This common Irish, Irish prefix, prefix comes from the French name for sun. All right, I'll give it to you. What is Mick? Okay. okay, that is what Tom McGrath said. Yeah. As what Tom said. What is O? It, the correct the correct answer is what is Fitz. And what I loved about this is that Tom responded with a phrase that Alex Trebek did not understand. He said, "Sorry, Coach." Alex Trebek said, "It's all right." Actually, Tom had said, "If I get this wrong, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble." And I'm sure it's because he's Irish. Yeah. Okay. So so then he then he says what is what is Mick and then Alex's like no it's uh what is Fitz and he says sorry coach and Alex says it's okay. Obviously he wasn't talking about uh Alex Trebek. He was talking about coach Fitzgerald. Yeah. So of all the questions for Tom and Tom is die hard. Uh, we're both die hard college roommates. We're in the band together. So that's one of my favorite uh Jeopardy and Alex Trebek uh stories. Some of the classic ones to go find on on YouTube. He could be very disdainful. I mean, sometimes he'd get to the final Jeopardy and he'd say, uh, I knew this one instantly. I'll be very surprised if you don't all know this. And then you just feel like, <laughs> wah, 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 wah. do you remember the one? This was a few years ago. The category was was football, I think. Uh, it was fun. All the questions, they got all five. They didn't know any of them. Nobody even rung, rang, even rang in, right? In. And the last <laughs> one was about the Minnesota Purple People Eaters. And he just says, if you get this, I will die. <laughs> or last one, the, the, the lady, you know, they do the little two minutes about yourself, which is what my wife oh, likes. And I just think, what a waste oh, of time. We could get 10 more questions. I don't need the, these awkward interviews. The nerd lady, right? Yeah, the nerd lady yeah. who talks about, uh, you know, nerd rock and with her friends. And he just says, so a get together for losers then. <laughs> uh, and of course, the, uh, the, when Cliff Clavin was on for Cheers. You remember seeing that? that the Cheers a, episode? I do not remember this one. Okay, before you go watch look at the Cheers episode okay, okay. where Cliff Clavin in the, the category. <laughs> master. Yeah, the categories are like Cheers. Our, our postal zip codes, oh, celibacy, <laughs> bars, or something like that. And so he, he racks up. He's ahead by a mile, and they get to Final Jeopardy. And I don't know, it's the name of three actors or something in his his question is, who are three people who have never been in my kitchen? <laughs> and then and then Alex says, well, you have to reveal, but surely you were so far ahead. You didn't have to wager anything. Of course, he's Cliff, but he wagered everything. <laughs> and he protests, well, they haven't been in my kitchen. Well, clearly, Cliff, that's not what we're going for. Okay. Uh, Justin, are you a Jeopardy fan? <laughs> You know, honestly, I haven't seen it for so many years. I end up watching a YouTube clip here or there, but uh, it, it was a mainstay growing up, just like, you know, it, 
in our family, there'd be 60 minutes on Sunday evening in the nightly news with Brokaw or Jennings or rather. And then, uh, yes, Pat Sajak and Alex Trebek were just there every every night. Um, what about Celebrity Jeopardy, used... Justin? What about Celebrity yeah. Jeopardy? Yeah. To lose Sean Connery Her. and Alex Trebek <laughs> in one week is a blow to all of us Celebrity yeah. Jeopardy fans. I, yeah. I don't watch as much meaningless TV though. as you guys. Um, so... Because no, I read too many actually, books, right? That's true. Listening to them. books and everything. No, there was an, a little write-up uh, by Washington Post reporter Hank Stuver. Um, maybe I'll just read it because it's four sentences, but I thought it was really a, a beautiful little tribute to Trebek and to the show. Uh, he says, never outlandish or garish that Jeopardy that Trebek hosted for 36 years championed intelligence with a rare and relatively quiet hush especially if you compare it with the rest of television's constant blare. With subdued buzzers and a soft musical interlude during its final question, the loudest thing about this show was the exclamation point in its title and perhaps the alarm that accompanies the double jeopardy question. Trebek maintained a safe space for smart viewers in the darkest, dumbest times. His show and the way he hosted it proved that polite order can be more fascinating than brute chaos. In 2020, that seems like a downright revolutionary idea. I thought that was just a beautiful little paragraph about a show that really does not have, uh, you know, some overarching uh, great significance for us. But he was just a constant, quiet, witty, semi-sarcastic, well-dressed, <laughs> polite Know-it-all. And he always yeah. had impeccable accents to it. He, he knew what he was doing. Uh, and... It's changed a little bit in recent years. Uh, there's more pop culture-y kind of stuff. Those Video are the questions. I don't know. Yeah, but still, I mean, it, it's every few weeks, and they have a category from the Bible. I mean, so it, um, it really did a lot with classic categories of Western civilization. I mean, where else are you going to have something about the opera or ballet or yeah. the Bible or... American history, just straight up questions about American history. So we will miss Alex Trebek. I don't know what his faith was, if he had any. He seemed to be sort of a genial, general God's good in my life. I didn't hear a real Christian commitment, but we will miss him. Any last thoughts before our final book question? Okay. So I, I wonder who's going who's gonna to follow. <clears throat> Alex I haven't even seen any. I haven't even seen any speculation. I mean, has it gone well on other shows when they've transitioned? I suppose it has. Like Steve Harvey um, seems to have done well. I don't know that Drew Carey's done very no. well. I don't know. He said that Betty Alex Trebek said he's he wanted Betty White to do it. <laughs> uh, come on, no, 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 no. <laughs> might have to say that it. makes sense. sense. Yeah, but there is something. Here's the last thing I was going to say: is there's something a lesson for us, and that's Christians about the the unusual power and simple elegance of longevity to do the same thing to do it with a level of excellence for a long time you know i think it, you know you say it justin in one sense it seems like well, how how could that job be hard but to do anything well for a really long time is really hard and i'm sure there were things about it that were harder than than we could see so there's a lesson there for, you know, the Pat Sajak and Alex Trebek or your favorite radio announcer for baseball. You do the same thing and you do it where you point to not yourself, but the thing that you're hosting or doing and for a long enough time and people will miss you when you're gone. And if you do that in the church and with eternal things, you'll even leave a much bigger legacy. Last question for you guys. Uh, 2020 has been, I don't know if it's a year unlike any other, but it's certainly been an unusual and difficult year. I wonder what, what's, uh, a book, maybe it's a movie, maybe it's a piece of music. What's something you go to, you come back to when you need to be encouraged. You're feeling discouraged about our day. You're feeling despondent, or maybe you just kind of need to be recalibrated. You feel like you've You've gotten off track and a certain piece of music or a, a book that you read. Okay, that's right. That's right. That, that's what really matters. 
you have uh, a couple of suggestions for us, Colin? Yeah, I do. So I've been thinking thinking about this lately, the last four years, and it's I'm not speaking here about President Trump President Trump's policies or things like that. I'm talking about a lot of the divisions in the church and friendships that have um, severed or weekend and I don't know it's just it's just been a painful four years I'll put it that way and I've been thinking about how um, I've learned a lot in the last four years that I didn't want to know <laughs> and that I'll never forget but what God did has done in these last four years has been very encouraging just for me personally in my faith but one major reason, uh, that this is the case is because of a book, and that is the hymnal, the hymn mm. book. Uh, specifically, I use the only one I have, which is um, which I need a recommendation on the best contemporary uh, hymnals, by the way. Um, but I still use um, the old red United Methodist one, and it's good enough for me for now because it has abide with me. It's got be still my soul. It's got uh, Jesus lover of my soul, complete with the Welsh tune. Uh, originally composed for. And uh, just sitting there, I remember in 16, feeling like so many things were falling apart, just sitting there with that hymn book open and just, just singing myself. And then my son at the time, my my oldest uh, child was was young, and we hadn't really gotten into a rhythm of family devotions at the time. And we were doing some things, but, you know, he was, he was one. Um, and so that year is when we really started doing family devotions with the hymnal. And now this year in 2020, uh, we bought a piano or actually we, somebody gave us a piano and I've been playing through the hymnal there as well for the family. And, um, that book, that's the constant. And what I love about it is, is above all God, uh, and his, and how he reveals himself to us through song. Um, and through these, uh, you know, hymns and spiritual songs. and and But also there's a, I just love the connection to previous generations of believers. That's such a ballast to me. And then on top of that, it's especially encouraging to me to be singing the same songs uh, that my grandparents, my great-grandparents, my great-grandparents, and then in my family's case, going all the way back to the Welsh revival in the mid-1700s. Um, not all these songs, obviously, but I mean, the same Methodist uh, you know, predilection for singing goes back there. And all of that really God uses to help keep me grounded and faithful and hopeful and joyful, uh, even when things are changing. So I hadn't really thought about it in those terms, Kevin, until you posed that question to us. And um, that boy, that was the, that's the one book that came to mind. That's outside great. Of the Bible. That's great. Uh, uh, let me quickly rattle through some. I'll give Justin the last word. Um, not surprisingly, uh, the books I I think of books that I'm that bring back some memories. There's some nostalgia, or they've they've played an important part in my life. So the Heidelberg Catechism, the Valley of Vision is always reorienting to slowly read through one of those prayers. You know, one of the books for me as a pastor and a preacher is Lloyd Jones' Preaching and Preachers. I've read that book several times. I've been listening to some of, I haven't listened to it before, but I'm listening now to some of the lectures. You can get them on the Lloyd-Jones app. And uh, I find that reorienting and recalibrating. Uh, you know, any of my favorite systematic theologies, I know that's not your thing, Colin, but I find to get lost in another century in the the complexity and the beauty and the precision of it. But let me give you, since you mentioned music, let me mention two pieces that I love. One is the Gustav Holst, the planets, and the Jupiter. And to narrow it down even further, there's a two-minute section in Jupiter that's now called the, the hymn tune, Thaxed. And I, uh, look it up. It's There is a hymn set to that tune in the Trinity hymnal, and I won't hum it for you here, but it's... Uh, it's just an exquisite melody, and I love that whole suite, and Jupiter in particular, and those two minutes are really rich. And then more than Ma anything else— oh, By Kevin, Mar Mars is the one that the college bands all play, right? Yeah, Mars is, is you know, fighting and angry. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Right, right. That's cool. 
um, probably my favorite, most comforting music outside of the the hymnal is the soundtrack from The Mission. You guys seen that movie? Dun, 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 dun. It's got Gabriel Zobo. It has so many good pieces. Actually, if you go to a Getty concert, you will hear their violin player at times play the theme from the mission. I actually heard it when they were at, you know, played the music for TGC one of those years. And I came up and I said, that's from the mission. She said, yeah, it is. So I, I can put that on. And it's amazing how good music, and sometimes you want music without any words, can transport you in a way and bring a sense of calm and peace and comfort. So I, I love that. Justin, um, go big red. <laughs> yeah, I should make that my ringtone, but uh, maybe it would depress me more than help me these days. <laughs> uh, let's see. I think for me, I'll just give one psalm and one song. So um, in terms of the psalm, uh, this year it's been Psalm 131, which is just a very short uh I think it's three verses long, uh, a prayer to the Lord, just telling him my heart's not lifted up too high. Mm -hmm. My eyes aren't raised up too high. I don't occupy myself with two things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. And uh, if I'm being honest, that is not uh, my default position, but that psalm sort of helps recalibrate my heart and mind and soul that uh, I can be at rest with the Lord because uh, I don't need to be occupied with things that are beyond my control. He cares for me and he uh, carries me along. And so I can, I can rest in him. So that's been sort of a, a default Psalm for me uh, lately. I, I think the hymn that I come back to perhaps as much as any other is God moves in a mysterious way by William Cooper. Uh he wrote it four years before 1776, before uh, our country's independence, so 1773. And if you don't know the story of Cooper, it's worth um, worth listening to John Piper's biographical address on him, which is really moving a man who struggled profoundly with a very dark depression. But uh, I think it's, it's one of the more beautiful hymns ever written. Uh, on YouTube, there's a a ministry, I'm not even familiar with who they are, but I don't know if it's a husband and wife, or just a man and a woman um, doing a rendition of it, Crossroads music that uh, when I'm discouraged, when I'm down, I like to go and listen to that song and listen to the beautiful theology and lyrics. And uh, I, I find that it always brings me back, refreshes me, encourages me. So those are two places I, I go back to often. That's great. Those are good answers. I mean, Cooper was a a renowned poet. I mean, it's a good example of the, the best poets writing the best hymns. He had a famous poem, Epitaph for a Hare, writing about his pet rabbit. It would sound silly. Uh, I, I was almost moved to tears. And you know, I don't cry about anything. No, I mean, it's just very moving. And uh, I really commend all of Piper's addresses, but I do remember that one on Cooper is really good. Colin, Justin, good to be with you again. Good to talk through these things. Lord willing, we'll have a couple of more episodes in this season before we take a break for the holidays. Thank you all for listening and being with us. Until next time, glorify God and enjoy him forever and read a good book. Mm-hmm.